Now, Israel has been at Mount Sinai. They have not budged in this book. It's the same geographical spot at the end of the book as at the beginning. This is the giving of the law. Now, don't think that when Moses went up to Mount Sinai that all he got were two tablets with Ten Commandments on them. I know that Charlton Heston would portray that. And, you know, watching the movie, you think all he got was, you know, uh, ten laws only. He got instructions on the building of a tabernacle. He got instructions on a sacrificial system, a way to approach God and worship Him and have fellowship with Him. But it is given at Mount Sinai, the giving of the law. And the entire book of Leviticus takes place at the same geographical spot. God is, in this book, giving instructions to His people on how to live in fellowship with Him, how to have a relationship with Him, how to walk in that fellowship. There is one major problem that is presented any time man wants to have fellowship with God. It's called sin. Sin is the great separator. It's the great divider. Holy God and sinful man cannot hang out unless provision is made for man's sin. Now, God is not one to say, I am holy God, you are sinful men. Na 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 na. <laughs> I'm down on you, I'm angry with you, I'll push you away. No, God is always the inviting God, the God who says, Come, and makes provision for man's sinfulness. Therefore, the first several chapters of this book are filled with the sacrificial system how to bring an offering and a sacrifice to God, how to prepare it, how to make it pleasing to God so that man can walk in fellowship with Him. Provision is made for approach. And when a man or a woman were to, was to approach God, it involved worship of the entire being and every part of the year, as we saw in the first part of this book. One of the principles we have seen in this book that is expressed, it's one of the key factors, is the shedding of blood. Life is in the blood, it says in Leviticus. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. There is talk in some areas, some corners of Christendom. I wouldn't even say Christianity, but Christendom as a banner. To do away with this bloody religion. To not emphasize blood. It's so messy. And so let's not sing the old songs, there's power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. Let's take away references to this vicarious atonement on Calvary, which can offend people. After all, we're much more mature than they were in the primitive days when they reveled in that kind of activity. We're in the 90s now. We're sophisticated people. But when you take away blood, you have no power. You have no approach. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So even if today you subscribe to the practice of the Jewish nation and every Yom Kippur you reflect on your year, balancing out the bad with the good, bringing up in your memory those good deeds that you have done, and you present those good deeds before God. Know this. You will not be accepted by God. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And then there's also another principle for Israel and for us, lest we think that our own works will suffice. For God told His people in Isaiah, all of your righteousness is as filthy rags. Now God isn't saying, I don't see the good that you do. He's simply saying, all the good that you do is not good enough to be right with God. It takes a sovereign work of God, something that only God can do for man, not that man can do for God. And Leviticus lays the groundwork for that type of theology and teaching throughout the Bible. Now, chapter 27 is not an easy chapter. In fact, it wouldn't even seem a fitting chapter with which to end the book. I think you'll see otherwise, hopefully, as we conclude. In fact, 
if you've had a hard time going through Leviticus and you've wondered, what good is Leviticus? Why are we reading this? To the Jew, the children who were raised in Jewish homes began their Bible reading with Leviticus. That's how they were weaned. Now, you could say, well, I can understand that. Anything after that would be easy to a child if you can get through Leviticus. But they had a fundamental reason for it. The Midrash, one of the commentaries on the Old Testament, said that as children are brought into the world to be pure and as the sacrifices in Leviticus are pure, he who is pure must understand the things that are pure. Hence, a child would be weaned on the book of Leviticus. It's very important to any Jew. We have seen that one of the major themes of this book is worship. We worship by sacrifice. And there were several themes that we set out. They're in your outlines. That if you still have the booklet and take notes in the booklet, it's all outlined for you on how the major theme is worship. Worship is a theme. This is how it works. When a sinful man or a sinful woman is accepted by holy God and has forgiveness of his sins, thereby having fellowship with holy God, the natural result will be worship. Fellowship with God brings the worship of God. And there's another theme that is very much warp and woof with that theme, and that is holiness. A forgiven person becomes a worshiping person, becomes a holy person. Remember Jesus said of the woman who came to the Pharisee's house, the one that has been forgiven much loves much. You want to serve God. And that theme is carried through also in chapter 27. But holiness is one of the underlying themes. It's mentioned 152 times in the book of Leviticus alone. I bet few of you, if any, have anything underlined in chapter 27. I may be wrong, but it's a different kind of a chapter. You've probably not heard many messages on it because many commentators and scholars have said that chapter 27 is one of those irregular passages of Scripture. It really doesn't belong anywhere. It's an addendum, a postscript to this book. And I guess they didn't know where to put it, so they tacked it at the end. Sort of a postscript. Here's some extra notes uh, on the worship of God and the dedication of things. I don't think that's it at all. I think it closes very logically. See, everything up to this point has been mandatory. In chapter 27, instead of dealing with obligatory issues, it's voluntary issues. The vows that are given in chapter 27 for the most part, are voluntary. Something that a person decides to do on his own. It's not obligatory in the least. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When a man consecrates by a vow certain persons to the Lord according to your valuation, if your valuation is of a male from 20 years old up to 60 years old, then your valuation shall be 50 shekels of silver, silver according to the shekel of the sanctuary. If it's a female, then your valuation shall be 30 shekels. And if from five years old up to 20 years old, then your valuation for a male shall be 20 shekels, and for a female, it shall be 10 shekels. Now before we get into the male and female, these were vows that were expressions of thanks. Spontaneous expressions of thanks of a dedicated, consecrated, holy, loving person to God. God did not command them. You didn't have to. It's simply if you want to, you come and you express by a vow. Actually, I've got to tell you, for me, true worship is this kind of worship. I don't think true worship can ever be forced. I've had some bad experiences. I've been in meetings where the song leader or the pastor, the minister, will try to engage everyone, sort of whipping them up into a frenzy. 
Now, come on, saints. Now, come on. Now, if you're really holy now. And, you know, the band leader goes for it. I was in one inst uh, situation where the pa I, I was a young Christian in church, and I was just sort of looking around at what was happening. And the guy walked up to me. I was sitting in the second or third pew, and he grabbed my hands, and he stuck them up in the air. Come on, worship God. And then he looked at me and goes, speak in tongues. I wanted to speak to him in a foreign language and see if he could interpret it, but I thought that would be a dirty trick, so I didn't do it. Though I believe in the perpetuity of spiritual gifts, I believe that true worship is something that comes from the heart. It can never be forced or pushed or manipulated. And that's what I love about this chapter. If there's any quality that emerges, it's that worship ought to be spontaneous, never forced or pushed. Jesus said to the woman in Samaria, Those who worship the Father must worship Him in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeks such to worship Him. Perhaps one scripture that would go along with this chapter is in Romans chapter 12. I beseech you, brethren, therefore, by the mercies of God, not by the wrath of God, not by the commandments of God, but in view of the mercy of God that I've just described to you in these 11 chapters so far, in view of all that, Present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you might prove what is that good and perfect and acceptable will of God. It's something that arises spontaneously from the heart. And a person in love with God doesn't have to have somebody to force or cajole or in a forceful way prompt. It comes naturally. And so the provisions are given for that in Israel's day in this chapter. It is the natural response, wouldn't you say, to any Christian after a short period of time to want to do something for God. Now the theological problem with that is what can you honestly do for God? And so you might want to say, how will God condescend himself to allow you to do something for him so that we're co-laborers with Christ? But nonetheless, that seems to be the natural desire. I've been a Christian. What can I do? Count Zinzendorf, the one who started what we call the Moravian Missionary Movement, very wealthy young man, raised in a very wealthy family, had anything he could want became a Christian, not really a whole lot changed in his life in terms of sacrifice, till one day he was walking by a painting, I believe, in a museum, either that or a large home that was like a museum. And it was a picture of Jesus Christ on the cross, and the artist painted it in such a moving kind of a light that it grabbed his attention, and he gravitated toward this painting and looked at there, Jesus sacrificing his life for the sins of the world. At the bottom the owner of this picture had put a plaque that said, This is what I have done for thee. What wilt thou do for me? And that touched Zinzendorf's life to the point where he said, I'm going to give my life to spread the gospel. And a great move of God began through his life, and many missionaries were sent out because of it. Psalm 116, David asked that question, What shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits? What will I do? because God has done so much for me. Now that is the natural order. That's the spiritual order. We ask the question of serving God, what can I do, based upon what God has done for us. Every now and then somebody will say, we've got to get people motivated, we've got to get them to volunteer for this and volunteer for that. No, all you have to do, really, is feed them, teach them, help them to understand how much God loves them and what God has done for them. When they realize how much God loves them and what God has done for them, they'll be motivated, man. And it's better to motivate with the Spirit than to motivate by the flesh. You can motivate somebody by the flesh and make them feel real guilty, but once they learn how to cope with that, they'll be out. Better to be motivated as making a vow out of love for God because I'm so overwhelmed with how much you love me, God. It is now my natural response to say, what shall I render to the Lord for all of the benefits which he has given to me? 
There is a chapter that I like in Ecclesiastes. Solomon has some good advice. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. It says, Do not be rash with your mouth, nor utter anything hastily in your heart before God. When you make a vow, do not delay to pay it. For God has no delight in fools. Pay what you have vowed. And then it says this, It is better not to make a vow than it is to make a vow and not to pay. Now that's one of the points of this chapter. These vows are not mandatory. But if you make it, you've got to keep it. So Jesus said, don't swear by heaven, don't swear by earth, don't swear by your mother's head or by this and that. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't utter anything hastily before God. These vows are not mandatory. They're not obligatory. They're purely voluntary. Um, I guess now's the time to do it. There's a vow that comes to my mind. There's several of them in the Bible that come to my mind. One of them is an example of an evil vow. When the judges were in charge of Israel, and pretty much everything was at a very low ebb in the nation. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. One of the judges named Jephthah was on his way through Gilead, on his way to Ammon, present-day Jordan, to have it out with the Ammonites. And he prayed, and he said a vow which he should not have said. He said, Lord, let me have victory over the Ammonites, and if you do, when I come home after the war, it's a time of peace, whatever comes out of my door, I will sacrifice it to you as a burnt offering. Dumb. Ridiculous. He uttered hastily before God. The battle was won. He secured the victory. He comes to his home, and as he walks toward his house, bounding out of his home, dancing with timbrels, was his only daughter, welcoming him home from the victory. He said, Honey, my heart is broken this day. I've made a vow to God that I will sacrifice whatever comes from my, out of my house. It says she was his only daughter and she was a virgin. And she said, Daddy, let me have two months with my friends out in the country to bewail my virginity. And then it says he kept his vow. Now, we don't know exactly what that means. A, some commentators say he actually carried out the gruesome act, which he shouldn't have, because God forbade human sacrifice. Absolutely, categorically. Or the way he kept his vow, some say, is that he wouldn't let his daughter marry. She had to stay a virgin as her way of fulfilling the vow, and thus every year it says in the text of Judges 11, the daughters of Israel bewail the virginity of the daughter of Jephthah. I'm not going to be dogmatic on exactly what that means, but my point is he made a, a dumb vow. He shouldn't have said it. So these are not mandatory, they're voluntary. Now, first of all, the consecration of persons. If your valuation is of a male... This is the dedication of a person and later on a thing. Now, when they made these vows, the idea was, in effect, I am going to give money to the tabernacle, the worship system, the sanctuary of God. That's what I'm going to do because when I say I'm going to dedicate a person, here, I'm dedicating this person to serve perpetually before the Lord. Not just anybody could do that. You had to be a Levite, first of all, to work in the tabernacle. You couldn't just say, yeah, I'd like to minister behind the veil for a couple weeks. You couldn't do it. Only a Levite, only the high priest once a year could do that. So when you say, I make a vow of a person or a thing, you knew that there would come a time when you would redeem, it is called, with silver. Not really with money, because at the time this was given, coinage was not even an operation. And so they would use the silver weighed out for the sanctuary or the tabernacle. That's how they would redeem that person or that thing 
back to God. Okay, now, if your valuation is of a male from 20 years old up to 60 years old, your valuation shall be 50 shekels of silver according to the shekel of the sanctuary. If it is female, then your valuation shall be 30 shekels. If from 5 years old up to 20 years old, then your valuation for a male shall be 20 shekels for a female, 10 shekels. And if from a month old up to five years old, your valuation for a male shall be five shekels of silver. For a female, your valuation shall be three shekels of silver. The greater the value was placed on the capability of the person to work. That seems to be the standard here. Not saying men are better than women and therefore they're worth more. Not at all. The idea is their ability to work. And let's say they were dedicated for God's service in the tabernacle or around the tabernacle. Maybe to haul wood in. They couldn't work in the tabernacle proper, only the priests could. But maybe they had some kind of, uh, uh, they were being dedicated and they were possibly to be used in some other capacity. A man in his prime from 20 to 60 could bear burdens more easily. Thus, when it comes to pure labor, he was valued in redemption does not mean he was better. In fact, um, I really want to underscore that because it seems today that there are those, feminists included or especially, who look for things in the Bible to discredit it. God is a male chauvinist. Look, he's just... No. In fact, quite the opposite. You will find out that brides in the Bible, you have to give money for brides, not for bridegrooms. Bridegrooms, the men get nothing. Uh, you don't have to pay anything for them, but the, the brides are obviously worth something, and the dowry has to be given for them. Moreover, if a slave is gored by an ornery ox, be it a male or a female, 30 shekels of silver across the board. It's not 50 for one, 20 for the woman. It's 30 shekels because they were the same. So don't get the idea that uh, one is better than the other. That's not what the scripture is saying. It's simply speaking about the workability, the capability in the labor force. And so you figure out the valuation and you pay those shekels of silver and the context seems to mean to the sanctuary, to the tabernacle of God. So you make a vow and it costs you something. That's why you don't say anything rashly before God. And one of the premises of giving, Old or New Testament, is that of sacrifice. Again, I remind you of David and his desire to build a temple to worship God in. And he went to the threshing floor, which is on the present Temple Mount. It was the threshing floor of Ornan, also called Arana in another passage of Scripture. It was simply a stone outcropping on the top of a mountain. And he thought, that's a great place to build the tabernacle or to build the temple. And so David goes up there with some money and says, I'd like to buy this piece of land. Well, David, why do you want it? Because I want to build God a place to worship. Oh, David, listen. If this is going to be for God, you can have it. Besides that, you're the king. God forbid that I should sell anything to the king, especially for so noble a cause. David said, no way. I refuse to give God something unless it costs me something. That was his principle of giving had to be sacrificial. And so these vows, you don't have to do it, but if you do it, you have to keep them and they will cost. Verse 8, if he is too poor to pay, I really like this part, your valuation, to pay your valuation, then he shall present himself before the priest and the priest shall set a value for him according to the ability of him who vowed, the priest shall value him. Let's say that somebody who is poor makes a vow. He's so excited, he's ecstatic, but he cannot keep his vow. He cannot afford to pay the silver that is required for the redemption. Let's say he dedicates his child. Let's say he dedicates his slave, but he can't afford it. Then instead of setting a fixed value as here, you adjust the value according to the means of the person, the poor person to pay. So you, you figure out what he can pay and you go for it that way. If it is a beast, such as men may bring as an offering to the Lord, all such that any man gives to the Lord shall be holy. He 
You shall not substitute it or exchange it, good for bad, bad for good. If he had all exchanges beast for beast, then both it and the one exchanged for it shall be holy. If you brought to sacrifice to God a clean animal, remember the difference between clean and unclean. God had certain specifications for animals given to sacrifice. If you bring a clean animal, it's an irrevocable sacrifice. You can't take it back. You can't redeem it. If you try to substitute it, let's say, gosh, this is a great animal. I'm going to substitute it for that little scrawny lamb back there. Both are now disqualified. They're out of the loop. And both are to be given, actually. Both forfeited, actually. If, verse 11, if it's an unclean beast which they do not offer as a sacrifice to the Lord, then he shall present the beast before the priest, and the priest shall set a value for it, whether it is good or bad, but you, the priest, value it. So it shall be. But if he wants it all to redeem it, then he must add one-fifth to your valuation. If you brought an unclean animal, that's fine, you can bring it, but you cannot sacrifice the unclean animal. You have to redeem it. If it's a clean animal, you can sacrifice it. If it's an unclean animal, it doesn't meet the specifications. You have to add 20% to the value of the animal. Some commentators think that that's your fine for bringing an unclean animal for sacrifice. It's not really sure, but whatever you dedicate for the Lord, clean can be sacrificed. Unclean has to be redeemed for a value of an extra fifth, 20% extra. And when a man sanctifies his house to be holy to the Lord, then the priest shall set a value for it, whether it is good or bad. As the priest values it, so shall it stand. If he who sanctified it wants to redeem his house, then he shall add one-fifth of the money of your valuation, and it shall be his. And so the house is sort of like the unclean animal. You say, oh, Lord, my house, I've dedicated it to you. It's yours. Which, by the way, in a spiritual sense, we all ought to do that. Our house and everything that is in it, our lives, our children, everything that we own, it's God's anyway. You're a steward of it. You have to be faithful to use it for God's purposes. It's not like, well, this is mine and that's God. It's all God's. But if in the context of a vow, I, I dedicate my house to God, and you go, you know, I shouldn't have done that. I want it back. Fine, you can have it back. Got to cough up 20% past its value. Now again, this, these are not mandatory vows. Verse 16. Now, let's say you didn't do that. Let's say you made a vow of your house. You did not redeem it for the extra 20%. Eventually... It will go to the tabernacle, to the sanctuary. That's what the Jewish commentaries say, that you lose it uh, when the time is up. Your time uh, is up probably the jubilee year. And if a man sanctifies to the Lord some part of a field, verse 16, of his possession, then your valuation shall be according to the seed for it. A homer of barley shall be valued at 50 shekels of silver. So... Land was based upon two things, productivity, number one, and proximity to the Jubilee year, as we'll see in a minute. Productivity in terms of how much arable land, tillable land is there. If you've got outcroppings of rock or you've got swamps, that doesn't count, but whatever you could uh, put seed in, that was valuable land. Secondly, the proximity to the Jubilee year. Let's say uh, 25 years passed and you've got 25 years to the Jubilee year, then the price, the full value of the land is cut in half. You measure value of land depending on the lease that is left in it. Because the Jubilee year is every 50 years. We covered that last couple weeks ago. A homer of barley seed shall be valued at 50 shekels. If he sanctifies his field from the year of Jubilee according to year evaluation, it shall stand. If he sanctifies his field after the jubilee, then the priest shall reckon to him the money due according to the years that remain till the year of jubilee, and it shall be deducted from your valuation. And if he who sanctifies the field ever wishes to redeem it, he must add one-fifth to the money of your valuation, 
and it shall belong to him. But if he does not wish to redeem the field, or if he has sold the field to another man, it shall not be redeemed anymore. So you can redeem it. If you don't, it goes to God for the use of the tabernacle. Perhaps it was sold for the upkeep of the Levites. But if you don't redeem it, again, it's an irrevocable kind of a thing. But the field, verse 21, when it is released in the Jubilee, 50th year, it shall be holy to the Lord as a devoted field. It shall be the possession of the priest. And if a man sanctifies to the Lord a field which he has bought, which is not the field of his possession, then the priest shall reckon to him the worth of your valuation up to the Jubilee year, and he shall give your valuation on that day as a holy offering to the Lord. You get the gist of it here? Let's say you're, you have land, but you bought it from somebody else. Well, how long do you have it? At the most, 50 years, depending on the Jubilee. It always reverts back to the original tribe and family. Well, it's obvious that you can't dedicate something that doesn't belong to you. I mean, that might sound convenient. I, Lord, I just dedicate this house to you. Well, what if it's not your house? Lord, all this landed church, hey, I want you guys to know this all belongs to God. Well, that's great if you own it, but if you don't own it, at the time of Jubilee, it goes back to the family, not the tabernacle, because of the family rights that precede the giving of this law a couple chapters ago. Nobody could claim it except the family. But if you wanted to dedicate it, they would take the value of the land, right? That which is uh, tillable and according to the proximity to the nearest Jubilee year, and you could redeem it for that value. So that could be part of your vow to the Lord. Verse 24, In the year of Jubilee, the field shall return to him from whom it was bought, to the one who owned the land as a possession. And all your valuation shall be according to the shekel of the sanctuary, twenty geras to the shekel. But the firstling of the beasts, which should be the Lord's firstling, no man shall sanctify, whether it is an ox or sheep, it is the Lord's. What he's saying here is that when you make a vow, and you're going to dedicate your house, you're going to dedicate your somebody in your family, you're going to dedicate some animal. That's fine. But you don't do it to the firstborn because it already belongs to God. It's no big sacrifice. Lord, I dedicate my firstborn for you. Lord, I dedicate the firstborn of my ox and sheep. It already belongs to God. God said in Exodus chapter 13, Exodus chapter 34, whatever opens the womb belongs to me. Period. End of discussion. You say, what kind of law is that? It's called the rights of the Creator. You know, everybody talks about, well, these are my rights. I've got my rights as a homeowner. I've got my rights as an American. God has certain rights as Creator. Whatever is born first belongs to me. Why? When they were in Egypt, the children of Israel were told, set apart your firstborn. And then toward the end of their journey, God said, Go out and kill a lamb and put the blood on the doorposts and the lintels of your house. The death angel will pass over your dwellings. I will keep your firstborn free from this plague, and I will judge and destroy all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. And so God spared them. And after God spared them, God claimed them. They're mine. And so every firstborn automatically had to be redeemed with money. And by the way, today in Israel, it's still a practice. If you're an Orthodox Jew, your firstborn son, you buy a certain coin and you give it to the synagogue of which you belong. And so you can't say, oh, I, I make a vow to the Lord. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, as a vow, give my firstborn. Because then you think, well, I'll kill two birds with one stone. I'll give them the money, but it's the money for the firstborn as well as the vow. No, no, it already belongs to God. You can't do it. You can't sanctify it. That's the idea here. If it is an unclean beast, then he shall redeem it according to your valuation and shall add one-fifth to it. Or if it is not redeemed, then it shall be sold according to your valuation. There's a lady in the Old Testament who wanted to have children. She couldn't. Her name was Hannah. 
she prayed. In fact, she, she cried out to God. Her prayer was not a silent prayer. She went before the tabernacle. She cried out, oh God, please give me a son and I'll dedicate him to you. God answered her prayer. And when Samuel, which means God hears, Shmuel, was brought into the world, Hannah, after the time of weaning, brought little Samuel to Eli at the tabernacle and said, do you remember that crazy old lady a few years ago was praying for a kid? You thought she was drunk? Oh, I wasn't drunk, but I'm the lady. When God answered my prayer, gave me this kid, and this kid is now dedicated for the work of the Lord. And Samuel grew up working in the tabernacle. As he was dedicated to God, in fact, he became one who did hear the voice of God and communicated God's word as a prophet to the nation of Israel. So that's the firstborn, and she dedicated her firstborn to God. Verse 28, Nevertheless, no devoted offering that a man may devote to the Lord of all that he has, both man and beast, or of the field of his possession, shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted thing is most holy to the Lord. No person under the ban who may become doomed to destruction among men shall be redeemed, but shall surely be put to death. You say, now what on earth does that mean? This seems to be another classification of devoted things. This is not a personal vow anymore. This is a corporate national vow. The Hebrew word is harem in this section. Devoted, harem, or under the ban. It refers to the spoils of war, either things or people, as enemies of God that were to be put under the ban. You don't redeem them. Now remember, the children of Israel cross the Jordan River. They see the fortified walls of Jericho. God gives them the victory. They blow their trumpets. They trust God. The walls come down. Rahab and her family gets delivered. But there was a man of the camp of Israel named Achan who took the devoted things. This is what it means. Those things, the spoils of war, he kept for himself. A beautiful Babylonian garment and some of the trinkets he kept and hid them under his tent in the ground. He should have destroyed them. But he lusted with his eyes. He said, you know, I want some of the... Why let him go to waste? God says, burn him. Just... Why? I want him. So he took them and brought judgment upon the nation of Israel, but especially upon his own head because of his sin. He was destroyed. Then there was the time when King Saul was commanded by the prophet Samuel through the Lord to go fight the Amalekites. Why? Because the Amalekites were the guys that dogged the elderly and the infirmed when the children of Israel were going through the wilderness on the way to the promised land. So Samuel said, Saul, get up. Go to the Amalekites. They've been destroying God's people. There's been war with Amalek from generation to generation. Do your thing. It says that Saul went and spared Agag, the king of the Amalekites, along with the best sheep and oxen and cattle kept them. So he did not obey God. He should have destroyed them. So he comes back and he meets the prophet Samuel. And he gets real spiritual and he puts on the spiritual talk. And he says to Samuel, Oh, blessed of the Lord, I have done all that God commanded. You know, so I said, Oh, praise God, brother. Hallelujah, man. When your heart really isn't right, it's just fake words. It's okay saying that, but if you don't really mean it, don't say it. Oh, blessed of the Lord, I've done all that God commanded. And Samuel said, Then how is it that I hear the bleating of the sheep, and what is the lowing of the oxen that comes to my ears? If you've done all that God commanded you to do, why do I hear the sheep and the oxen? Oh, well, we've kept the best to sacrifice to God. Yeah, but that's not God's command, buckaroo. Now, this is paraphrased a little bit. That's not what God commanded you to do. You've disobeyed God. To obey is better than sacrifice. God said to Samuel, I, I resent, repent of the fact that I've even raised Saul up as king over my people. I found another man, man after my own heart named David. 
So no person under the ban who may become doomed to destruction among men shall be redeemed, but shall surely be put to death. And all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed or of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If a man wants at all to redeem any of his tithes, he shall add one-fifth to it. Now Israel was under the tithe, a tenth belonged to God. Actually, all of it belonged to God. A tenth, put it this way, was exclusively used and devoted to God. A tenth of your income, a tenth of your grain, a tenth of your fruit. It all belonged to, that belonged to God. You dedicate that to Him. Now, in the New Testament, and I've asked this question, we are not under the tithe of the Old Testament. Though it seemed that the early church practiced the tithes, they brought in their tithes and their offerings to the storehouse. In the New Testament, we are under a free will kind of an offering. Whatever is in your heart. For some, it's 10%. For some, it's 20%. There was one man, Letourneau, who invented those huge tractors and earth-moving equipment that you see across the street. He was the first guy to invent that stuff. He says, God, help me to make a lot of money so I can give it to your work. He made a lot of money. Toward the end of his life, he tithed, he offered 90% of his income and kept 10% because it was enough for him to live on very well with a lot of extra benefits. But God blessed him so that he eventually gave 90%. Now, we're not under the tithe. Well, how much should I give? Whatever's in your heart. Whatever you can do joyfully is under the Lord. Now, if you're going to give that money, if it's 10% of your income, you think, oh man, why do I have to, why do I have to do this? I, I could buy something for my home. I could put cool wheels on my car with that money. I could buy that new CD. I'm going to give it to God. Keep it. Keep it. One time I actually said, if you've given to the Lord's work, and it's not been with a joyful heart, but with a grudging heart, come see us will give you a refund. Because God doesn't want your filthy lucre. He wants your heart. In all the years of me saying that, I've only had one, but I was still surprised to have one. <laughs> Who came and he said, oh, okay, listen, I gave and I, I want my money back. <laughs> he was a grump. So he gave the grump his money back. Hey, God doesn't need it if it's not with a joyful heart. Not grudgingly, 2 Corinthians says, nor of necessity, because I feel like I need to, but God loves a cheerful, literally in Greek, hilarious giver. Can you give hilariously? Then give. That's why, though... Passing the plate and taking an offering is perfectly legitimate. Paul took an offering in the early church for the needy saints in Jerusalem. We have simply chosen to put boxes throughout the auditorium. You can see them. They're all around. To make it easy for a person to give. And so that that person can give without people looking and seeing how much he's writing the check out for. Just whenever, however, it's God's work. I don't go into the computer and look at the tithe records. Well, how much is so-and-so good? Let me look. Oh, wow. It's between you and God. Now, people in the office know because that's what they do all day long, but they are not allowed to disclose it. It's private information. And I don't ask because I want to be able to look at a person not based upon what he or she gives or doesn't give. It's completely between them and God. And it gives me the freedom to minister to their spiritual needs without having to be tainted by anything else. If a man wants to redeem all his tithes, he shall add a fifth to it. So... You know, it'll cost you extra if you want to redeem that. And concerning the tithe of the herd or flock, or whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. He shall not inquire whether it is good or bad, nor shall he exchange it. And if he exchanges it at all, then both it and the ones exchanged for it shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. Now, in any flock... In any group of animals, not all of them are going to be exactly the same. There may not be continuity. 
Because of the gene pool, it can change. Some may become very strong and healthy. Others born will be scrawny and weak. The shepherd could be tempted. Now, on one hand, if he's a very, uh, you know, an Ebenezer Scrooge type of a guy, he'd be tempted to give the weakest. Oh, find the lame ones, the weak ones, the ones without much hair. Give those to God. On the other hand, you might have a very zealous for the Lord type of a herdsman who could give all of his best breeders away for the work of God. Take those to the tabernacle, all of them, which would deplete and injure his own flock. So God instituted a great law. Every tenth one belongs to God, regardless of if it's good or bad. And it's just an easy uh, law. Whatever passes under the rod, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, separated to God. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Now one might be healthy, one might be scrawny, but God says just every tenth one is to be given. And they shall not be exchanged. You know, so that if you get a real great-looking uh, animal that passes under the rod, it passes inspection, and it's, I mean, it's like, well, this is the best one. I don't want to give this one away. Tough toast. It belongs to God. Same with that would, which would be less fortunate or weak. Now, before we close off with the last verse, it is difficult exactly because we don't have a detailed record of it. It's difficult to know exactly how in daily life this whole chapter was fleshed out, the keeping of vows and dedication. There's one thing, however, we know. By the time of the New Testament, as with many other Old Testament laws and directives, it had become corrupted. And through the oral law, they developed clever ways of breaking commandments by using this idea of dedication. They called it by New Testament times korban, korban a dedicated thing to God. And uh, I'd like you to turn with me to Mark chapter 7 to look to see what has happened by the time of Jesus Christ. The Gospel of Mark, 7th chapter. For the most part, since children were a blessing from God, a heritage from the Lord, blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Jewish families typically had many children. It's a blessing of God. They didn't see it as an irritant. They saw it as a privilege. Which also meant it was, you know, it, it was a two-sided coin. You have to expend a lot of energy when you have a lot of kids. But when you get old, there's an advantage. A lot of kids, no problem for them to take care of the parents. In fact, Parents had a responsibility to honor their mother and father, which in Jewish terms meant till the day of their death you honor them and you provide for them. So the more kids, the merrier, the happier you'll be, the easier it'll be for the children when they get older. And the Jewish people knew that's our responsibility and our privilege. However, they took this idea of dedication so out of context that to escape the fifth commandment and the responsibility of honoring mom and dad, they started saying, well, I can't let you stay in my house. It's dedicated to God. It's Corban. And I can't break my vow to God by letting you have my BMW or my couch or my camel cart or anything else. It's, it's God's. So they would lavish things on themselves, say that they're Corban, getting out of the commandment. And so, verse 5 of chapter 7, the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to, notice, not the commandment of God, but the tradition of the elders, the oral law. But eat bread with unwashed hands. He answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. And he said to them, All too well you reject the command of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is Corban that is dedicated to the temple. And you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. 
They had taken the oral teachings of the rabbis and elevated them over the Scripture. You say, well, they probably didn't intentionally do that. Oh, actually, there is a passage in the Talmud that says, the teachings of the rabbis are more lovely than the Scripture. Some of them saw it as a more heinous crime to transgress the great teachings of Hillel, Akiba, and other rabbis rather than the Word of God itself. And Jesus condemned them for that. And so he says, making the Word of God, verse 13, that's the crux of it, of no effect through your tradition. Straining at a gnat, swallowing a camel, so that you can benefit from it. All right, we finished the book. What's the lesson that we end with? The lesson is this. Your life ought to be dedicated to God. First of all, it begins with you. Your life, your heart. Not just outwardly, but inwardly. Then you ought to dedicate everything in your life to God. Your kids. Are your children dedicated to God? I don't mean formally have we taken them up and prayed for them, though that's a good idea to do. It gives a lot of people the opportunity to pray for the future of your child. But are your kids, your grandkids, your family dedicated to God? It must begin with you, however. A mistake that I think a lot of American parents make is this. They don't care about God. They could give two cents about spiritual matters until all of a sudden they have a toddler in the house. See, and then they think, hmm, I see a problem here. My child will grow up rootless and moral-less, like me. <laughs> I better send this kid to church. Honey, we better go to church. Hey, good, great, go for it, find a church, get locked in. But you yourself must be dedicated to God. Saying a little prayer of dedication on Sunday morning and getting a little certificate won't cut it because your kids are smarter than that. Your kids will realize, yeah, mom and dad started going to church when I was born and they don't live it at home, but they make me go to church and sit in that Sunday school. So you must be dedicated to God. You must surrender your life to the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. Then you dedicate your children their future, your home, your income, everything. Lord, it's yours. I'm a vessel. I want these things to be used for your glory. How can they be used? But it begins by the dedication of your heart to Him. God is holy, the Creator, separate and distinct from His creation, who has condescended to have fellowship with us meager creatures through the blood of the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. Thereby the gap is closed. Fellowship can be attained. The result of that ought to be worship, dedication. You have access to God. Are you using it? Are you coming boldly? As the Bible says we should. If you realize your atonement, forgiveness, that you have fellowship, it will cause worship and holiness.